Welcome to Halal Money Matters, presented by Saturna Capital. I'm Christopher Patton, Saturna's cultural attache, and I'm here again with Monim Salam, Executive Vice President at Saturna. Hello. Hey, Chris. How's, how's it going? Good. I'm glad to have you back. I'm glad we're doing this again. Yeah, it's really exciting. Our last episode went really well. I think we got to talk a little bit about the why. Just recording it, we had so many things we wanted to discuss, so many avenues we found ourselves wanting to go down that uh, it was not hard to envision a full slate of these. So I'm excited to be back and build on what we talked about last time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if listeners ever, ever have any thoughts on what topics we should do, maybe we should kind of invite them to, uh, Absolutely. To give their feedback. Yeah. So in the last episode, we did talk about the why. And I think where we left it off was the how. Yeah. Um, so I think t- today the idea is to discuss a little more about Islamic finance, kind of an overview, and then maybe get into the details about what makes an investment halal and w- what what can we do in this space. I think that's a good, that's a good idea. So give me give me like the elevator pitch for Islamic finance. So that's uh, you know if you, if you really technically think about it, it actually goes back fourteen hundred years. Sure. Um, to the time of the Prophet, um, and and their and, and their general rule when it comes to finance, and, and one thing to keep in mind is. You know, the Islam is kind of broken up into two different categories. One is called the ibadat, which is the worship, and the other one is called the mu'amilat, which is your daily interactions. Mm. And so that's two different bodies of, of, of understanding that are there. And, and part of finance is the, um, the, 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 you know, the daily worship part of it. And so what, what the general rule is, is that anything that, that God or the Prophet prohibited us from doing, um, then we would we'd be prohibited from investing in also. So, for example, in the Quran, you find the, the prohibition on gambling and alcohol. So we would not be invite, allowed to invest in companies that are uh, involved in gambling or alcohol. Um, so that's generally how the, how the guideline started. Within that area, there's a larger um, group because, you know, alcohol and tobacco, those are kind of the smaller areas. Sure. The larger group is actually having to do with uh, both uh, what's called riba, which is interest, mm. and the second category, which is called gharar, and that's uh, speculation. So those are two large areas that that uh, that probably a lot of people talk about the riba aspect, but not the the speculative aspect of it. And I think those may make up a, a big section of uh, of Islamic uh, finance as well. So then fast forward. I mean, I think that throughout the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, all the different empires that happened uh, during the Muslim Islamic states, they they did for the most part practice you know Islamic finance from that perspective. When the colonial powers came in, they pretty much you know gutted out the system, and uh, and put in their own. And so if you look at, you know, post-colonial in the 50s, 60s, most of the Muslim countries are, don't actually operate under Islamic finance rules. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, that, you know, people talk about. Well, you know, the majority of Muslim countries, you know, why don't they do it? And that's one of the main reasons why um, they're not there. So there's a difference between a Muslim country and an Islamic country. So And, mm. and there's really none, none that are out there right now. So in the 1950s and 1960s, there were a, a lot of professors and scholars were thinking about this idea of how do we bring Islamic finance back um, the first, um, I think, iteration of that was in 1969 when the Hajj Fund of Malaysia was started. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because if you want to go for Hajj, you want to keep your money pure. So they wanted to make sure that they were uh, keeping in line with Islamic uh, guidelines. And then in 1975, um, the, um, there was two uh, gr- groups. One was in Emirates, the Islamic Bank started, and also the Islamic Development Bank. And then you fast forward in the 1980s, you have um, different funds in the U.S. that began and then really took off in, in the 1990s. Now, the actual guidelines, um, if you look at it from an investment perspective, which that's what we're primarily going to be focusing yeah, on here, sure. right? Um, they're a function of two things. One is the knowledge of the scholars and what should be and should not be part of the guidelines. 
and the other part of it is technological advances that have taken place. Mm. So, for example, in the 1960s, if you told people to do certain things, like if it came to screening out balance sheets, you'd literally have to have human manpower going in, looking at physical copies of annual reports, making those calculations. Well, now that's done all, all on Edgar filings and computers, so a lot easier to do. So I think both of those things marry each other well when it comes to the guidelines. And so, it, it, I mean, it seems that the, the, the primary act of finding, like, what is, what is an acceptable investment is to exclude. There's, a, there's an exclusionary process that says we're trying to isolate and identify the investments that are permissible. Yeah, I mean, I think that the guidelines are made up of, like, let's say, three, three uh, uh, categories. And two of them are exclusionary and mm-hmm. one of them is inclusionary. Okay. Um, the two the exclusionary ones start off on a business screen basis and says, you know, if a company's primary business is something that's haram or not prohibited, then that would not be acceptable as an investment. The second is also exclusionary. It basically looks at and says what are, are acceptable ratios of companies that are involved with something that's that's forbidden. And so you, by that you would mean uh, a company that's primary business is one thing but may have a very tiny part of their business that involves a yeah, certain activity? Yeah, that's one part of it, yeah. a tiny part. Of it. Like, like I think my, my classic example that I use is a, an airline. Sure. Airline is in the business of transportation. It was in and of itself is permissible, um, but they do sell alcohol on their planes. Sure. And so you know, how much of that would be tolerable uh, from an Islamic perspective? But the other bigger aspect of it is you know, a lot of companies borrow money mm. and they have to pay interest on a lot of companies have cash on their balance sheets, and they, they get money from that. So all of those of things have to be taken into consideration as well. Um, there's a funny story, actually, that you know, initially when the guidelines were being created, um, you know, one of the scholars said, you know, debt is really bad, and I don't want companies to pay interest on, on any company that's that, that borrowing money. And so the, the, the practitioners went back, and they, and they did some research, and they said, oh, this, uh, the S&P 500, 50 companies actually have no debt on their balance sheet, which is pretty good. Well, we can make a fairly diversified portfolio from that. But a second scholar said, um, you know, well, that's good too, but I also don't want companies that have bank accounts because the bank charge interest, and we don't want that either. So, Chris, how many companies do you think there are in the S&P 500 that have no cash and no debt? Uh, I'm going to say around zero. That's probably pretty close. <laughs> it's probably right. And so, uh, so that, you know, th- that guideline didn't work. So sure. that's where the tolerable limits began to be uh, implemented because the scholars realized that, that it's not possible otherwise. So when you mention the scholars, I'm curious, is there an agreement among scholars? How are these numbers arrived at? Are there differing views? That's, that's a good question. I mean, I think that uh, from our overall perspective, I would say that there is an agreement. Mm. So, for example, nobody would argue that you shouldn't be investing in alcohol companies or those type of things. No, nobody would argue also that even looking at debt to market cap or debt assets, those ratios should be looked at. Mm-hmm. What you get into disagreements on is maybe percentages. Mm-hmm. So is it 30? Is it 33%? And then you also look at uh, valuation metrics. So, for example, do you want to use market capitalization as a value of a company? Do you want to use total assets, enterprise value? And those are um, ag- disagreements that are not in um, a form. They're more in substance. What is the true value of a company? Sure. And I'm sure analysts, just secular analysts, would argue about that as well. <laughs> Absolutely, so, <you> know. yeah. <laughs> so if companies are changing their business, they're, they're adding, they're, they're constantly re-envisioning their businesses, it seems that it would be common for a company to go from halal to haram just overnight. How do, what does that look like, and 
who's watching that? So, I mean, I think that's a good um, a good point you raised. You know, companies either through mergers or acquisitions or a change in business strategies can always uh, fall in and out of out of compliance. As an example, you can you can use as Amazon. So, as you know, Amazon um, a few years back received its uh, alcohol uh, license in Washington. So an investor can look at this and say, well, you know, they're eventually going to get into the business of selling alcohol, which is not acceptable. Hmm. And so, you know, um, they can choose to exit it prior to them selling the first dollar of their alcohol because uh, there's plenty of advance notice that was given or that the day that they actually open up their stores is when you can sell it as well. And, um, you know, in retrospect, you look at it and say that, well, Amazon has had a tremendous run after you would have sold it. But again, you know, these guidelines are set up not for only the pure returns, but also based on your your heart and what's going to happen to you from your valley's perspective. How widely known in the Muslim community are these guidelines? How widely practiced is this? Is this something that you are constantly educating about? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I, I you would think that a lot of people would know about it. We've been doing this now for for quite quite a few decades. And I think it really became popular in the in the you know, early 2000s, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know myself and other people began to go traveling the country and giving seminars and stuff. So you would think that everybody would know about it, but really we, every day we come across people that are like, "Oh, I've never heard of Islamic investing before," and and they're Muslim. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's a good opportunity for us to keep educating people about uh, what is allowed, what's not, and what the consequences are. The one thing that I didn't mention earlier. Um, was when I was talking about the screening, I said there was two exclusionary, one inclusionary. So the third one, which is the inclusionary part, the idea is to really invest in companies that are doing things that Islam encourages or even just good for society. Hmm. Um, there's actually a verse in the Quran which, which um, God says, you know, enjoining the good and forbid the evil. And, um, you know, like they say, the past 30, 40 years of Islamic investments, we've really been only forbidding the evil. We won't do it's all exclusionary, right? But I think the inclusionary part of it, which is those companies that are doing good, is actually put part of the second part of that verse, which is enjoining in the good. We're beginning to implement that as well. It's really exciting. And again, uh, you know, probably 30, 40 years ago, that probably would not have been possible based on technology and also on understanding of the scholars. But now we're able to do it. I'm really excited about the next 10, 15 years of, of seeing where we can go with this. An added element of that to me would be that companies now are doing more reporting on the good mm-hmm. with the kind of rise of ESG metrics. Companies are more incentivized to demonstrate the the good that they're doing as, in, as opposed to just the bottom line. So yeah. we're probably seeing more reporting, more numbers, more metrics. Absolutely. And it's only going to get more and more. Uh, and I think that, you know, uh, the, 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 the companies that are involved in Islamic investing do have somewhat of an advantage in that we have the screening methodologies in place. Um, we have a formalized structure. For example, you know, if you look at the ESG space, it's uh, everybody does whatever they want. It's pretty much all over the place. Whereas in Islamic investing, you know, there is a general consensus, as we were mentioning earlier, um, that the scholars agree upon. And there's a formal structure of the scholars uh, auditing the portfolio, making sure you're following the guidelines, doing all of those things. That's not there yet in ESG. That's where I think our industry can can help uh, kind of help establish the rules uh, of, of, of what, what, what that looks like. Yeah. And that's really exciting as well. So, I mean, I think generally, um, you know, if you look at different indices, people always ask the question, like, I mean, am I going to get hurt by investing for, uh, Islamically or not? Missing out. Missing out, that's yes. right. Yeah, so, yeah. So, as one of, one of my colleagues once mentioned, um, he called it the COBM, which is cost of being Muslim. And he was joking, <laughs> joking around, but, sure. you know, is there one? So do you, are you sacrificing returns 
when it comes to uh, um, you know living by your principles. And I think the general answer that that we we found is um, you're not hurt or you're not uh, helped in the long run. And what mm-hmm. I mean by long term is you know taking it on a 10 year, 15 year basis. So if you look at, for example, an index, and you take that same index but just screen it atomically, and you look at the performance over a 15 year period. There's actually statistically no difference between the two. Um, there will be periods when the index outperforms because of certain industries that uh, Islamic guidelines are not allowed to buy, banks and those things that they will outperform. And in other cases, um, Islamic uh, um, uh, you know compliant uh, 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 investments will outperform. So, for example, you know in a recession when when you know debt is not looked good upon. Obviously, we're in Islamic investing. We're looking at loaded companies, so we'll outperform. So, on a, you know, on a period by period basis, it could be either way. But I think on a long term basis, I think there's statistically no difference. And that statistically no difference is important for a fund manager, only because it it, it levels the playing field for us to be able to outperform an index. And that's really what active fund management is all about. And so that's what we're trying to do. And when you say when you talk about taking a long term view, I mean that's kind of what we want to be doing anyway, right? With the limitations on speculation, I uh, mean that favors a longer term investment horizon, right? That's correct. I mean, you know, I mean people can look at the, uh, the the stock market as a gambling tool, or they can look at it as a as as a way to be able to build wealth. And really, the the, the guidelines were set up so that you that a an average Muslim could build wealth over time with the use of the stock market. With small dollar amounts, and so you know, from that perspective, you do want to keep in mind the long term, which is you know, I'm saving for my retirement in 30 years. I'm saving for my children's education in 20 years. Those are the types of of, of things you can do. Now, you can have short-term investments. Um, you know, I want to buy a house in two or three years. How do I save up for save up for the down payment? All of those things are there, and and sure. and these uh, funds in general, investing, Islamic investing, is can be used. Um, for those purposes, um, but generally speaking, it's it's not about day in and day out trading. It's more about holding it for the long run. So there's the three really great resources. And the first one is actually our our, our newsletter that Saturna comes out with. The, the Art Arm um, actually um, has has a good article on uh, Islamic investing and the history behind it. And then there's actually two books that are also on our website. That's uh, www.saturna.com. Uh, the first one is called A Muslim's Guide to Investing in Personal Finance. And that one actually goes through and, and talks about each of the different areas of Islamic finance, not only from investing, but also mortgages and zakat and 401ks. So it's a good good primer. And then the second one is written by Dr. Yaqub Mirza called The Five Pillars of Prosperity. Both are available on our website, so if you go there and, and uh, ask, ask for a copy, um, somebody from our office would be happy to mail you one out. Yeah, we have a nice form to request those for free to be mailed to you. Yeah. So that's that's a pretty sweet deal. We have a very special guest that I'm really excited about for the next episode, Owais Dadaboy, who is our director of Islamic investing at Saturna Capital. Um, you know, he's been involved in the finance industry for a very long time, more over over two, uh, 20 years, joined us in 2008. And since then, he's been very active in, in really educating the Muslim community. And I'm, like I said, overall, I think he's a great, great asset. And I think I'm very excited about the next episode. All right. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks, Chris. I'll see you. Please consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. 
To obtain this and other important information about the Amana Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit amanafunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana Funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax accounting or legal advice to our clients, and all investors are advised to consult with their tax accounting or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way copied or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital. To the extent that it includes references to securities, those references do not constitute a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold such security, and the information may not be current. Accounts managed by Saturna Capital may or may not hold the securities discussed in this material. The S&P 500 is an index comprised of 500 widely held common stocks considered to be representative of the U.S. stock market in general. When available, Saturna uses total return components of indices mentioned. Investors cannot invest directly in the indices. 